Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to Film Roundtable. My name is Maria Prieto, and I'm here to introduce our guests for today, as well as our very special guest moderator. Before we dive into the conversation, though, I'm going to lead us through a moment of silence to honor all 6,135,450 recorded worldwide COVID deaths as of today. And we're recording this on March 25th, 2022. We would also like to honor all of our Black, Brown, and Asian brothers and sisters, as well as our First Nations brothers and sisters, whose lives have been taken by the hands of police brutality and other senseless acts of violence. Thank you. Thanks, guys. <clears throat> we've been um, we've been holding these moments since our first roundtable, and we're really grateful that you continue um, to be here supporting that space and holding that space to us. So um, I would like to introduce today's guests, starting with executive producer Peter Polk. Peter is an award-winning independent producer of several films that include In a Valley of Violence, The Sacrament, and The House of the Devil, which I love. Uh, he has produced on dozens of films for Larry Fessenden's production company, Glass Eye Picks, and they've earned worldwide distribution along with accolades and recognition from international film festivals. He's also a member of IFP, where he has served as Narrative Labs mentor, of Film Independent, and of the Producers Guild of America. Peter, welcome to the roundtable. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And joining Peter is the aforementioned horror auteur, Larry Fessenden. Larry's an actor, producer, and director of the art horror movies, No Telling, Habit, Wendigo, and The Last Winter. His producing credits include The House of the Devil, Stakeland, and The Comedy. He founded Glass Eye Picks in 1985 and has been supporting individual voices in the arts ever since. Larry, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, nice to be here. And lastly, I'd like to introduce our moderator for the day, Sean Glass. Sean has had a prolific career in music, tech, and clothing. He launched his own record label in 2013, Win Music, and received a Grammy nomination his first year behind it. Sean has produced and directed a series of short films, including a 1984 period piece in present day, which was nominated for the Grand Jury Prize at AFI Fest in 2020. Sean, thanks for joining us and for leading this conversation. Well, it's fun. It's funny that you mentioned that one because that's kind of like the lead in for this conversation where, I mean, that movie is, first of all, Peter helped me make that movie, made a lot of introductions. James Stewart shot that movie. Chad Harbold produced that movie. And there's two really, really, really obvious nods to Larry in that movie. Like one line directly quoting him from another film and just the overall shape of it is... Uh, is basically one of your other movies. Uh, so I'm really indebted to all of the, the Glass Eye Picks lore. As, and, and it's a double honor working on this with Aaron and Maria because I've listened to all of the all of your film roundtables. So I'm really happy to be doing this. And uh, thanks for thanks for having me. And I guess before anything, uh, this is all the timing of this is is around the MoMA retrospective for Glass Eye Picks, where was showing a lot of different films that Peter and Larry have worked on over 30-ish years, I guess, uh, going back to late 80s. Um, and that starts March 30th, right? Yeah. Yeah. So either 
either if you're in New York City, you can go or there's going to be a lot on virtual. There's even some stuff on virtual that I haven't seen, like a lot of Larry's early shorts. So I'm really excited for that. Um, so after this, I'll, I'll be catching, I'll be completing my, uh, my glass eye education. Um, oh, only, only a partial uh, selection, of course. The, the, of the, course, yeah. The education will have to continue from there. <laughs> and, and many more to come. Well, so this is really exciting for me because I've, I've been following your work for really my, you know, my adult, my, my adolescence into my adult life. I, we talked a couple of weeks ago about an email I wrote you 20 years ago, uh, just being like, Hey, I'm a fan of yours and, 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 and wanting to be in your crowd. And then that somehow I ended up, I think Peter, that may be where I met you at Ty's premiere and uh for house of the devil around that time and i've just been following you guys around ever since then so this is a very cool thing to be able to talk through all of this and i love both of you guys and a huge fan of all the films so okay i as a new yorker that this is like my first thing that i want to talk just like growing up in new york city east village life going to movies being into music what was give me a little bit of your like early early pre no telling pre kelly reichardt where how'd you get into movies what were your what were your first memories uh the first movie i remember seeing was king kong i saw it on tv obviously the original uh and you know i just took a shine to it but i was like dinosaurs and monsters and that sort of thing i'm very much like a child of my generation I'm obviously older than Peter, uh, but uh, I uh, I would write books about dinosaurs. I loved great white sharks. I was obsessed with them long before there was Jaws or anything like that. So uh, my brother was obsessed with the Titanic. So I guess our whole family was sort of macabre. And uh, I just grew up wanting mostly, I guess, to be an actor because when I watched movies, I was watching the actors. Uh, I also have another seminal memory of seeing a movie called Suspicion, which was uh, uh, one of Hitchcock's movies that I still love with Cary Grant, Joan Fontaine. And um, it, there was something about seeing that movie. I, I just sensed that, uh, well, I, it, it spoke to me. There was something devilish about it. And um, obviously years later, I can identify that I could feel the director. Um, so I, I went to, high school and and was an actor primarily and then I directed plays and and then I found a Super 8 camera in 1979 and I realized that the camera told a story um at that point I'd seen Taxi Driver and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest seminal stories of the 70s uh and I just started making movies and the cool thing is that in my time it was a mystery what or how you became a filmmaker you didn't really even think about that you just so that, that's sort of been my orientation always is just that you do it. It's an art form. It's a form of expression. You try to figure out how to do the best job. I never thought of it quite in a career way. Uh, when I went to college, I bought three-quarter editing equipment and I started editing for actors, putting their reels together, but also performance artists. And so I sort of got into their crazy worlds and uh, tried to uh, use the video medium to capture what they were doing, often just to, um, you know, archive their their work, which might have been more 
live. And through there, I met uh, this crazy guy named David Leslie, who was the impact addict. And he'd wrap himself in bubble wrap and jump off a building, all this crazy stuff. And, um, and then I started making more feature oriented movies, but always in a way a discovery. And then video was a, a big deal because I realized you could tell stories with video, uh, sync sound, and it wouldn't cost you any money. Um, so I, uh, I made a movie called Habit uh 1981 i think and it was the idea of telling a vampire story very very personal truthful it was about a alcoholic uh guy who met a woman and got drawn into it and he started thinking she was a vampire so this was sort of my seminal story to tell which combined my interest in horror movie tropes that i had loved my whole life frankenstein and dracula all those uh, films uh, which played on TV, and then sort of bringing it into a more personal contemporary world, which I was seeing in Scorsese's work and and the more contemporary 70s movies. So that's that's the brief history. I mean, I've skipped over all my love of just watching horror on TV and making monster models, all the things that it's very much, it's so interesting now you realize it's a generational thing, you know, and it all goes back to when Universal sold all their monster movies to TV channels. And then they were put out to kids from the 60s. And then they made cereal with Dracula on them and monster models. And so, you know, there's a lot of people of my generation who grew up in exactly that same mode. And I think some of them became the directors we think of as the later horror directors like George Romero and John Carpenter. Uh, and, and a lot of those guys who went on to make classic films. Anyway, it, the, the story continues. And then the cool thing is that I continued to wanna help other artists once I was helping the performance artists. I just enjoyed the camaraderie of making work together and trying to see what other people were interested in doing. And um, just to conclude this little summary, I think that's what led to Glass Eye Picks where I not only deeply wanted to make my own stories, which tended to be towards horror, but I also liked the experience of not really mentoring. It was just of, of the, the excitement of working with other people and trying to understand what, what was exciting them and then seeing if I could help. It was my natural tendency to be an editor and figure out ways to tell other people's stories. And, you know, Ty West was my intern um, which is connected to Kelly Riker, who was his teacher. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah, cool. I mean, it's so, it's so beautiful. It's all so linear. Um, Kelly Riker and I, I ended up making a movie called No Telling in 1990 with my wife. We wrote it, and it was a movie about vivisection and uh, chemical farming. I mean, it was very environmental, very passionate. And, it's your first Frankenstein, I think. Yeah. yeah, and it was very naive in the sense that this isn't what people wanted from a first-time filmmaker. It was really <laughs> nobody cares about the environment. They don't care about animal rights either. In fact, they're both disparaged topics, especially in the early '90s. So, uh, the movie was almost humiliating, uh, but it was you know I, I still stand by it. It's, quite nicely put together. You know, I had a lot of ambition to tell the story with great camera moves. And this was when early uh, 
Coen brothers were making films. And so there was that wonderful moving camera from Raising Arizona and, and this sort of thing. So whatever, no telling. It reminds, I, I don't want to take you off, but I watched it back to back with Stray Bullets and camera work. Like you could tell this is like, you watch these two movies and it's the setting is really similar. And yeah. I see how you're using the camera in a lot of similar ways. And just, just the, the construction of shots and the way you move the camera is, is, is in both movies. And it's wild to see that, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Of course, Stray Bullets was made by my son when he was 15, <laughs> but he'd been watching Coen Brothers. He'd never seen No Telling, uh, thank goodness, but, uh, or he would have disowned me. But uh, anyway, yeah, and I was the DP on that, but I deferred to him. I wanted him to learn the idea of designing a movie, and that's how I speak about filmmaking. And um, so anyway, I'd made no telling and that was a little embarrassing. And so what did I do? Well, of course I went back to serving others. And so I met Kelly Reichert and I ended up acting in her movie, but also editing her movie in a very rudimentary way. And we sort of, it was like a film school because I'm very opinionated about filmmaking, which is anyone who knows me knows I can prattle on. And, uh, and anyway, so then Kelly rose to some prominence from that first film, River of Grass and ended up being a teacher um, at uh, SBA, and that's where she met Ty. And of course, this all leads to Peter Polk, who uh, was, were you in Ty's class, Pete, or was it? We were in the same, um, we were in the same year, but we didn't have classes. Um, our, our freshman year, each classes were broken into a few blocks. And so we had a couple of like, big classes where everyone was in there, like our film history class. So, but like, while, like, you know, I, I met Ty, essentially we'd be paying friends, I think, and we would see each other in the, uh, in the editorial room when we were still cutting on the steam decks and just like working away. And so it was sort of an acknowledgement of like, well, we're, we're both into doing this and spending the hours doing it. And then um, it was another one of our classmates, Sean Reed, who did have classes with Ty. And that's sort of how uh, we kind of got bridged together. And, um, and then, you know, from like, I think it was literally our freshman year on into uh, senior year, um, we just kind of continue to help each other with the shorts that we were always making. So Kelly said, has anyone ever heard of a movie called Habit in her class? Now, this is no longer the one I'd made in 1980. This was now, I had made the film again in 16 millimeter in New York City, 1990. For, it sort of came out around 96, 97. And so I guess you guys were in school then and Ty raised his hand. He was the only person in the class who knew what she was talking about because it was just an obscure video, but he had seen it on the shelves in, um, you know, where he grew up. Where is that, Delaware? I mean, yeah. um, uh, in Delaware. And he would rent videos with his pal, Graham Resnick. So yet another <laughs> member of our, of our community introduced, they were the best of friends. And um, and Ty had seen Habit, so he raised his hand and eventually she said, well, if you wanna intern with this guy, he's in New York and, you know, and so on. So Ty came to my house and he started interning with me. And it's funny, there's a great picture of Ty with my little kid, like who's this big. Uh, and so Jack had already been born and Ty was there and my office was my house. So <laughs> we're all there 
And I just remember that I ended up like doing dubs for Ty and working for Ty right from the start, even though he was my intern. But uh, I saw his shorts, which Pete was, uh, I mean, one of them was called Prey. It was like a werewolf movie. One was a ghost story and there was a third, but uh, I immediately saw that he was an intuitive filmmaker. And I said, listen, kid, if you ever want to make a feature, yeah. you come back. Uh, and sure enough, you know, right after he graduated, he brought uh, three pitches, which Ty's always been very smart about pitching because he, he knows you don't just go in with one idea. And one was a, a voodoo story, which I was like, meh. And the other was, um, was, <laughs> was these uh, killer bats, which of course was a terrible idea. We didn't have any money, uh, but uh, he pitched it to me as an environmental story. And I was like, that's the one to make. And I know you yeah. just, uh, just figured out that would get me excited. So um, I've been working with this great comic book artist named Bram Ravel. Uh, he had been at Cooper Union, which is another New York institution. And I said, Brahm, I need you to do this for me. You have to learn how to animate. I'm going to go out in Tompkins Square Park and run around like I'm being attacked by bats. And then I want you to draw them on top of me. And if you make it look good, we're going to make Ty's movie. So he did. And there's this great video of me going, yeah. And it's only funny because there were people in the park just looking at me. Going, <laughs> What's with this guy? Uh, but Brom drew the bats on, and we said, that's it. Now, this is the difference between me and Peter, who came on as a producer. And the point is, I was satisfied with, <laughs> with the little drawings. That would have been the movie if I had made it. But uh, we eventually hooked up with, can you believe there's going to be another name, Glenn McQuaid, who was a um, wonderful Irish filmmaker. But at the time, he was working... Um, what was it called? Quiet Man? Yeah. Quiet Man, which was a, an effects house that did, you know, Super Bowl ads. And, and you know, they were using the new digital technology to, uh, to sell shoes and beer and whatever else. And um, we asked Glenn, did, did he think he could moonlight and make our bats look a little more real than the drawn ones? So then this whole team of people were started moonlighting, uh, making the bats. But to Ty's credit, he was extremely precise. I mean, he literally would say, I, I need 36 frames of the bat here. And, you know, he's precise almost to a manic degree. He'd go, you know, it's going to be like this. And then you're like, okay. So we, we went in and we did the precise amount of shots we needed. Uh, but Peter came on as producer. And of course, among, as well as, is that true or were you on post? But anyway, he also found Jeff Grace. So it's the story that goes on and on. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I came on, I remember it was uh, probably, I came on right after, yeah, we had just graduated probably a couple months back um, and we're in New York and we're just trying to figure, find our way now, you know, film school is done. And Ty, you know, said he was making a movie with you and, um, and you brought Susan Lieber on yeah. To, to produce and and I was just kind of content to do whatever um ended up filling in the slot of like a production manager and um a role which I felt like was was something that I was like still learning as we went along but it was something that I discovered on my own thesis of just like you need to create an environment for a filmmaker to operate and I felt like that's you know in order to do that work and you need that space um and so that's what we kind of set out to do 
uh, in making the roost. And, um, and it was a number of us that were, I think Eric Robbins, who also went to SVA with us, was our cinematographer who had just bought a brand new uh, uh, Aton A Minima, uh, a camera uh, that shot uh, Super 16, but a special load that Kodak had created. Uh, it was an extra longer load that uh, uh, allowed us to shoot a little bit more. And, you know, it wasn't a camera necessarily for features, but, you know, you know, this is what we had. And so we made it work. Yeah. And, uh, and Sean Reed was in the movie. Uh, and what's fun, you know, this is what excites me is, is these endlessly interconnecting threads because, um, uh, that DP, good Lord, what's his name? Um, Eric. <laughs> yeah, Eric went on to shoot Ties Western, you know, a decade later or something like that. And uh, and Sean Reed was in a couple of our other movies and, you know, uh, still still in the circle and a pal. And um, and then Peter met uh, Jeff Grace. What was it at a film festival? Tell that story. Because oh, sure. Yeah. So stuff. Jeff Grace. Yeah. Um, so for my thesis film, I was very ambitious and I was inspired by Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. So I set out to make this um, uh, this musical called Long Island Love Story. Um, and uh, not playing yeah. it, Puma, unfortunately, but it should be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so I made this musical uh, without real musical background or anything. I had a lot of help um, in making it, but um, uh, well, I think it's called the Gotham now, but it was once called IFP. Um, and IFP used to have a screening series called Buzz Cuts, where they would play short films. And I was invited to screen uh, my thesis film there. And Jeff Grace uh, showed up. And as a composer, he was there to see it. And we kind of chatted afterwards. And, um, and he told me he'd been working uh, with uh, Howard Shore um, and, and Peter Jackson on the Lord of the Rings movies. And I was like, so impressed with with that and knowing how big of a fan Ty was uh, with Peter Jackson and all the rings um, from the many nights we spent at Ty's parents house watching them. Uh, you know, we, we just kept in touch. And then when we came to into post on the roost and, it you know, I think at one point Ty said that there wouldn't be a score. And then then, the you know, by the time you get to post, you know, now we, we are looking for a score. And I said, well, I know this guy, Jeff Grace, and he's in the city. So let's let's see. And uh and now Jeff Grace, you know, has done so many titles with us. I mean, he went on to do everything uh, all the way through to the Western. And now he works for uh, Jim Mickle, who's another Glass Eye graduate. Um, and they've carried on as well at TV shows and Netflix uh, series and so on. And, um, and Jeff Grace did uh, The Last Winter for me and, and just so many titles. But it was these early ones that were particularly remarkable because we didn't have a lot of money, but the invention is spectacular. And Jeff Grace knows some world-class musicians. Uh, Dave Egger in particular comes to mind. He's literally a child prodigy and a great cello player, cello player and would always bring a certain artistry that elevated even Jeff's work. So that was just another sort of secret weapon in our arsenal of, of remarkable talent as we made these, honestly, these no budget films. And uh, it's worth saying that the guy that worked for me at the time, who came because the impact addict who would jump off of buildings in the bubble wrap, wanted me to um, help him put on this show called Box Opera. And 
basically when he felt that I would be overextended, he said, you really need an assistant, Larry. So <laughs> he got me to hire this fellow who came in with the most unusual credentials. He could do any job uh, from sort of budgeting to actually making films. Um, and he loved horror and his name was James Felix McKenney. So he was another secret sauce to all of this because he sort of figured out that I really loved supporting other talent and he made sure that I supported him. I produced uh, a no budget film of his and then that sort of led to The Roost, which led to, and the thing about The Roost, Ty's film, uh, is that it actually made us quite a great deal of money. It seemed incredible at the time, but it, it really uh, struck a chord. We sold it. Um, honestly, we doubled our money, which was incredible. And so then suddenly I was like, well, I'm a producer now because I can actually afford to make these movies. So we started um, encouraging people to come up with scripts and stuff. And, and then I had a friend who wanted to get in on the Ty West uh, bandwagon and uh, they asked, they said, we want to hire Ty to write a script. And they asked for some pitches. And the funny thing is the pitches were two bored people working in a hotel having pizza and there's a ghost. And they were like, I don't know. And the other pitch was um, this babysitter goes and something to do with, uh, there's some witchcraft or uh, you know Satanism. And they were like, oh, that's what, that would be great. My two partners in this. And I was like, oh, Satan, ugh whatever. I, I like the pizza one better, but okay. So, uh, well, that turned into House of the Devil. And, um, but those guys were slow to find the money. Um, and that was never my forte. I just was the kind of guy that said, let's do this. So Ty got impatient and well, he went and made Eli Roth's sequel. And that annoyed him. Uh, it's sort of famous that he didn't like the way they treated the edit. They kind of took over his movie. Um, that was Cabin Fever 2. And then he was impatient that House of the Devil wasn't getting financed. So he said, I want to make another no budget movie with Glass Eye. And he made this movie called Trigger Man, which was really cool and had a great score by Jeff Grace. Um, and it's Sean is in it. And that's a great movie. And that was filmed in his backyard where he and Graham grew up. And Graham then went off and made his first feature. Um, and Peter was very much boots on the ground there. I mean, you made that on your own, right? Yeah, uh, it was like we had just come back from Trigger Man and then you had given me the script for I Can See You. And then, you know, we were just basically going back to that same park, you know, behind their, in, in their backyards, yeah. I just remember Pete, you know, and, and you know, Sean, you haven't been able to get a word in edgewise. You probably want to talk about something else, but uh, it, it's Guys, just, I don't care. <laughs> I must say, what makes this feel different for me anyway is that Peter's here. And you know, I'm often celebrated for some of these directors that I've worked with and mentored, or I mean, mentor is the wrong word, but you know, that we came up, uh, we made stuff together. and. The truth is, is that there were a lot of producers that I also sort of uh, seized upon and, and used their energy. Uh, all of these movies were, and, and ones we'll talk about in a moment, you know, Peter was there producing and then, and James McKenney was, was also working. And then soon we met uh, Brent Kunkel. So the point is, is that there were a lot of producers also finding their way and getting their sea legs 
on all these projects. And it's important to know that there's more than just the director learning their craft and uh, you know making mistakes and making uh, great triumphs and successes and solving problems. I remember Pete calling and you know the issue was how much sandwiches were. You know we we're we're getting them for like a buck seventy nine each and can we you know how can we get the craft service to work better? You know these were the things we actually had to deal with. Never mind while the directors were off hand wringing about themes and so on, which were also fun to talk about, but. It was really, we were inventing the idea of these, of how to do this production work and solving problems and uh, using favors. There was a lot, there was a whole aesthetic of, you know, going back to the neighborhood, both Ty and Graham went back to their neighborhoods. I think they stayed at their parents' house and used various resources. And that's how we, um, we managed to really have this model of making almost no budget movies. And then there was a demand for them in the video market in the old days. So we, we could actually get them distributed. Um, and so it was really fun. And we certainly, even if there wasn't a lot of money in those distribution deals, there was a sense of camaraderie and excitement in the uh, film festival world. People were enjoying this work because it felt very handcrafted. Well, Regarding what you just said about Peter, there's 10 years in between some of these stories and there's an inflection point. This is something I've always wondered about, about you, Larry. In, in those early days, when you were discovering video, when, from what I understand, you were kind of using editing as, as, a, as a tool to build your ecosystem of, of, of artists and filmmakers, what was your inflection point when you realized I don't want to be because we know about the auteur theory. There's a million of those people who, you know, run and gun gritty. They rose up. But you very early in your life, not later, once you were like once you had a million people working for you before anything, you realized this collective mentality, everything you just said. It sounds really logical when you're talking about 2008 when you have all these people that you just rattled off, but you you had this realization in the, in the 80s. Yeah. What was going on in your life when you decided this should be Glass Eye Picks, not Larry Fessenden, the actor, director, editor? It's an interesting question because uh, when I would edit for The Impact Addict, I would always just say edit by Glass Eye Picks. And he was like, "What? why don't you want your name on this? And it, I didn't really have an answer and I certainly didn't have some theory, but uh, first of all, I love the name Glass Eye Picks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was cool. Uh, uh, but it was also, I think I have this sort of instinct towards the idea of a, of a community and, and that in the way there'd be strength in numbers and also that there'd be a philosophy guiding a number of different individual artists you know, who didn't have to in any way conform. It's not like, first of all, we didn't all make horror movies. I mean, I always do. Ty knew that that was, uh, I think, the smart thing. I mean, it's always weird with Ty. You're never quite sure why he makes horror movies because he, his greatest talent is in the, the casting and the, and, and the sort of the non-horror elements. And yet he sort of uh, seems to know that that's a genre of, of value. Then someone like Graham just likes sort of uh, 
hallucinogenic movies, but we've my, some of my favorite movies are, are that we've made is Liberty Kid. That was uh, not a horror film. That was made by Ilya Chaikin. That'll play at MoMA. Uh, shot by Elliot Rocket, who's gone on to work with Ty West with uh, Innkeepers as well as uh, X and the forthcoming Pearl. So um, there again, those through lines are really a delight for me to think about. And, uh, and I think, you know, growing up reading horror magazines and James Whale made The Invisible Man. And, you know, so there's, I think it's also when you're sort of a fanboy, you're aware of these connections and that's delightful. And in a weird way, you kind of like the idea that you're, you're part of your own narrative. And, and, you know, there, there are these stories that will reverberate and these connections that happen in showbiz and uh and mind what's it called you know hive mind whatever you know different people of like-minded coming together uh, i don't know that was always a thing you know you hear about the french new wave and godard and Truffaut hanging out well they're very different artists but there was a thing there and then those guys came and called up albert hitchcock and said we think you're an artist apparently when he read that letter from Truffaut saying we think you're an artist we want to do a book about you he cried Alfred fucking Hitchcock, who, you know, he was fine. He was doing just fine, but he he never felt acknowledged as an artist. So uh, all of these kind of stories appealed to me. And, and obviously you had De Niro and Scorsese making just incredible work together. Um, and when you peel back the onion, you realize, oh, that's so funny. You know, Marty didn't want to make Raging Bull. He didn't know anything about boxing, but De Niro got him to do it and all of this. So. I think what I'm saying is that I, I had an instinct towards participating in the myth building of a community as well. I mean, you know, it's built to me aesthetically. Um, and, and sort of that's all the journey. And I always say these cliches, you know, like some old man who's reading, uh, you know, fortune cookies, but the journey is more important than the destination because you really don't know if you'll get to the destination, which is the Oscars or the, or the real distribution deal, but the journey and working together and inspiring each other and finding all of that is what I find interesting. And I think it's also a, a safety mechanism because you're not attributing success to just some, some thing that's very difficult to achieve, but you're saying I can own the process and be part of uh, just a good, good vibe or whatever, hard work. You know those kind of things. <laughs> I don't know if I'm biased because I, for whatever reason, you know, saw a lot of the early work when I was young, and just and I, I was in New York City and I got into it. But I feel like everything that you're saying and everything that I've absorbed over these these years of of your of, of glass eye, it's counterintuitive to the myth making that the rest of the industry works really really hard to, uh, you know, to to it's it's artificial you know where it's a single person often who gets all the mentions but every film around glass eye like even right now with ty's release x that's at 824 like i don't know people don't really again maybe i'm biased but like i don't talk about that as like an a24 movie it's an extension of of you guys and and this whole world and there's so many people you know Elliot Rocket like like you mentioned shooting it uh, there's a lot of people associated with that that have that have been threaded 
for many films and the collaborative nature of all of your work is something that's really like your retrospective right now ties together a lot of filmmakers and that's really, really cool. I don't know of a lot of other examples like that. Usually there's one figurehead and yeah, they have friends and stuff, but not so many formal, tangible connections where a bunch of people made careers, where they were able to get their artistic expression out. It, not, not just like, oh, cool, this person's a craftsman and got, you know, pays their bills, but like there's a lot of people who they're recognizable names that have come out of Glass Eye. And that's, that's, it's, it's awesome. Well, I mean, X is, has that family uh, uh, vibe because, you know, Jacob Jaffke, I have videos yeah. of making sandwiches for Bitter Feast <laughs> on the couch doing the uh, DIT. And, you know, that was a movie that was a hundred grand uh, with a wonderful filmmaker, Joe Maggio, working with such gratitude to have that much money. And because he used to make movies for, you know, $5,000 and somehow sell them to IFC. And, and he never had made a horror movie. And we made a deal uh, with this company, and I'll actually go back to that, uh, to make a slate of movies. And one of them had to be like a really tiny movie. And I literally called Joe and I said, I know you can make a horror movie, Joe. I just know it. And we need somebody who can make, really deliver a, a cool, thoughtful movie for no money. Uh, and so I said, we can shoot in my house. Uh, I said, you know, I'll get uh, James Legro, and, and, and we built the movie. But anyway, that was Peter Pope, Jacob Jaffke, and Brent Kunkel, all of whom became producers in their own right over the years. And now they're making X together. And, uh, and you know what else? Owen Campbell, that's his first yeah. role. And now he's in uh, Ty West film, getting into all- He's in a million movies now, but yeah. Trouble. Yeah, and of course he's done other things, but he's also been on our plane. So Owen yeah. is great. I knew his, I know his dad, and we made theater together back in the day. So a lot of things do go way back. Um, but that's, uh, yeah. So I also, I think it's important to say that Ty has a sense of loyalty, and you know, uh, he came up through some of the same ideas of. Uh, whatever he's a tactile filmmaker his approach to film he still shoots film when he can um and you know he he's a craftsman whatever he has some of these old school values and i think he takes loyalty seriously though he doesn't let it get in the way of uh, <laughs> his own advancement but uh so i think um yeah maybe that's why there's still that feeling of uh because I I'm not competing with A24. That is an A24 movie all the way. And I just want to oh, say, beautifully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the trailer is really awesome in the way they have released it and the kinds of press that have come out. Obviously, people love the movie, but A24 is 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 a wonderful guiding hand, and it's it's kind of great to see uh, Ty and the whole team sort of slide over into that zone because that's pretty groovy. That leads me into something I, I wanted to ask, like, you know, from the early days building into right now, like, what have been the, what have been the big supporters on the, you know, more mainstream industry that have, that have been a few key moments, you know, from the beginning to obviously like A24 right now, pulling some of these ideas out and, and broadening the exposure out of the niche market? Um, well... I guess I'm going to just talk about myself. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> it's only interesting because, you know, I did, I suffered a long time feeling like nobody liked me and I couldn't get anything done. And uh, then I made habit and got a little bit of attention. But then I got the Someone to Watch Award, uh, which was a spirit award they give to, you know, somebody who is, quote, worked without getting uh, the proper attention. And I, I thought it meant a great deal to me. It was a, one of the few times I've really become, well, just emotional about getting recognized in any way. Well, you know what? It turns out that was Guillermo del Toro, which is just such a sweet truth. He had been on the committee or whatever you call it, and he had helped um, push through that, my win. I mean, I'm sure I was uh, nominated because they had to nominate a couple of people and I qualified, but then to win was I think his doing or at least he advocated. So then years later, that that came, um, led to you know us working together on a script and me and Ron Perlman hanging out, although that was separate, but then came together. So. I mean, these are all these threads that happen. I, I'm acting like I had lived this blessed life, but I mean, everybody can tell these stories. But what I think I've said here is that I find them interesting. How I think it's also about like-minded people. First of all, we're all making dark stories, horror movies, you know, which means you're somewhat of an outsider to begin with, um, as as an artist, but also even as a company. I'm sure A24. Uh, well, you know, they've sort of taken that to a badass place um, because, but they, they're making dark films, obviously, The Lighthouse and uh, The Witch and whatever else. I don't even know what they've done, but, uh, you know, uh, and then, you know, you have Neon. So there's some badass people on the peripheries of showbiz and they're always, well, now they're doing quality work and there's some acknowledgement that hard storytellers can also be um, art filmmakers, you know, like uh, the hereditary dude and, and all of this. I mean, that's a, that's a new thing. And I, I would claim that Glass Eye was part of that, establishing that idea that some of these, uh, that our films can have uh, both substance um, and, and artistry, you know, so that's, that's a, a claim that I like to make and nobody, been, nobody's been arguing with me, so I'm gonna keep making it. So, but so back to, so the roost happened. And then I told you my two friends said, we wanna make houses, right. well, we hired Ty. And then Ty got impatient and he made Cabin Fever 2 and he made Trigger Man. And he was saying, you know, whatever happened to that, that damn project. And then one day they, they, they found the money and it was the most money we'd ever had, right? And I gave, I told Peter, I'm going to Mexico, you'll go make the movie. So Peter took over that production um, and he can tell you how that went down. But uh, so the money came from this wonderful company called um, MPI Media in uh, Chicago, run by none other than Greg Newman. Uh, and he uh, not only made House of the Devil, but we ended up making five movies together. And um, wow. I was very grateful. I mean, in a way, the Greg Newman years were how we made our best movies because we got actual money for a change. Um, we made Stakeland, House of the Devil, Innkeepers, and uh, well, then we made Late Phases, we made Bitter Feast, Hypothermia. That's a lot of movies with one company, and I think it showed that even though there was occasionally contention over 
you know, financial things and cast and all the usual uh, stuff. Uh, I think we had a pretty darn good run of it. I like all the movies. I, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I have favorites, but I don't think there's been like a, an up and like an up down period. I personally, I don't know. I don't look at it that way. Maybe, it, maybe provisorially there's times where you were flush versus, you know, scraping it together. But um, yeah, that's all I mean. No, I think yeah. all those. And then yeah. Peter, uh, how did, where the hell did uh, I sell the dead fit in? Because that was really a, amazing triumph and i love i saw the dead yeah that's yeah. so unique yeah um i saw the dead was probably in around uh i want to say like late 2006 i just come back from shooting graham resnick's i can see you um from from wilmington and then you know you in turn said okay i got a new script for you and i said okay <laughs> um read it uh it was glenn's script for i saw the dead um you know really enjoyed it but i also was like well how are we gonna do this because it's 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 period like you know victorian era uh you know british isles uh a wild situation um and you know i'm, I'm you know budgeting these movies as a line producer and you know having to kind of figure this out um, and so it took some, I think, you know, it, it took a little while to kind of figure out how we were going to approach it. But, you know, I don't think uh, we ever said we were going to go overseas. It was always like, well, let's just do it here in New York and just, you oh. know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, I mean, I think I committed like 250. And then Glenn said he wanted to shoot film. And we're like, yep, yep we, we'll figure that out. <laughs> but I mean, the turning point. And, you know, we had, well, I'd already made The Last Winter, and that was actually $3 million, $3.5 million movie with Ron Perlman and James LeGro and Connie Britton uh, and, um, and uh, you know, Kevin Corrigan, wonderful people. And that was a big... I was about to say, Kevin Corrigan, Zach Guilford, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was a big deal for me, and I felt... You know, the other thing you can tra trace is that when when I have some sort of success and I feel like I've done something, then I'm a little more generous with the company and I just feel like, you know, my ship is coming in. So so let's let's make some more stuff. Um, and that was sort of we Glenn and I had come back because I brought Glenn over since he did the bats. I brought him over to do some CGI work. So he'd been in Iceland with me and Ron Perlman. We were all palsing. And, and then I. I mean, the point is, is we thought maybe Ron Perlman would be in the movie. And we also thought uh, Angus Scrim would be in the movie, who's from the Phantasm series. But he'd uh, come into our fold through James McKenney, who I had mentioned earlier. James had a great affection for Angus and, uh, and they had hit it off. And Angus had already done a couple things with us. Uh, but the true inspiration was uh, when Peter Polk said, well, I've got an idea for the lead character at Tell That Story, Pete, because it was insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think at that point, um, we, yeah, we had Ron and, uh, and I'd been watching Lost, which was a very big TV show at the time um on abc um and uh and i was talking to glenn about the character and i said well you know well, what about um this actor dominic monaghan who he you know you may recall as mary from lord of the rings and um and i think glenn said something like yeah of course but how are we going to get him and that became you know my new sort of goal was you know all right let's 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 cast this movie and so you know went on imdb pro and looked up his rep and literally just like you know cold pitched them and then you know and 
Um, they would ask about budget and said, you know, we're working on it, but you know, do so you want to do this? You know, can we send over the package? And um, and I think that something special that you know you always did, Larry, was like, you know, we talk about pitching, um, but it wasn't just the script. Um, we had uh, uh, an artist, uh, production designer with us, um, David Bell, who had sketched on a bunch of location photos, what our world could look like, what our fortune of war bar could look like. Um, and I think there may have been even the early rendering that Brom Ravel did of the, the comic for I Sell the Dead. So, you know, sending that package and a, and a personalized note with Glenn of why Dominic should play this movie, you know, the package got to him in Hawaii where he was shooting Lost. And I think it was at a time where he was um, vocal about, uh, you know, being on the show, but not, you know, in, a, in all the scenes all the time because it was an ensemble cast. Um, but yeah, I mean, a week and a half later, I got a call from Dominic. It was, you know, I mean, such a surprise. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it like, it, it, it happened. It came together. It was a real, it was a real triumph. We went to, uh, oh man, we went to LA. An amazing trip. It was me, Glenn, Peter Polk, uh, and we met up with, we took Ron Perlman and Dominic out for dinner. I mean, I think we, you know, had to mortgage the house. It was fantastic. We, no, no expense spared. We went to this fantastic uh, eatery and, um, and, you know, everybody hit it off and we just had such a fun time. Glenn is immensely charming. He's got an Irish accent, which works every time. And, uh, and he had just such a love and knowledge of his own story and, and, you know, such a great storyteller and, and uh, it was just a wonderful trip. And I think we walked away thinking maybe they'll do it. And they did. Um, but it had all kinds of crazy scheduling problems, which is part of the charm of it. Um, because we had to work around all the, I think Perlman was doing Hellboy 2. And so we had to wait for, we shot some of the movie and then we had to wait for three months. And that became, this funny policy at Glass Eye that, you know, this idea you have to shoot your movie in three weeks is just based on some old Hollywood model. And if you have a little more control of the financing so that you're not bonding the film and doing all this scary stuff, you're, you're working on a handshake and you're like, okay, will you guys come back in three months? I mean, it was insane, literally working on a razor's edge. But because we had these strong relationships, I think, we personalized the work. And so it was outside of the world of contracts. It was like, yeah, we'll, we'll make it happen. We'll come back. So we managed to do it. And I only bring it up because we did it again on Stakeland, which it wasn't a bonded film, but we were using other people's money in that one, meaning MPI. Uh, but there again, we said, listen, it's going to be so powerful to tell this movie over the course of a couple of seasons. So we took, maybe it wasn't, three months for that one but it was a period three weeks or a month off and uh and then we were able to play it summer and winter and it's it, you feel it in the movie you feel like this is a true apocalypse where you know these people are are out in the in the wilds dealing with the elements i think it was also really um bet you know another like bonus of of that period in between was you can get a little ahead with editorial and that would inform the filmmaking a little bit more and you can adjust when we went back in. So on both films, we had quite, you know, I think at least three months 
in between. Um, and with Stakeland, we literally shifted locations from Pennsylvania all the way to upstate New York. So you really got a sense, I mean, for a road movie, uh, you know, a change, a change up, not just season, but, but locations. Yeah, and uh, it, there's no question that Glenn learned a lot. He was a first time filmmaker, at least first time feature. And uh, Glenn was the director of I Sell the Dead and he, he edited the material and, and he really was able to previs the second half of the shoot. And they're noticeably more uh, designed and ambitious and, and, um, and somewhat more charming. And so I think he really benefited from that time off. And there's a classic story with Jim Mickle, whereas I, I really believe that after we shot half of Stakeland, Peter came to me and he said, well, they've spent three quarters of the budget. And I was like, what, what's going on? And he said, I, I just feel that Mickle is over covering, you know, I mean, he's being a thorough filmmaker, but we can't necessarily afford that. So I sat Mickle down and I said, dude, you gotta be more decisive. You gotta just choose your shots. We can't just, just be, shooting and you know it, this stuff all takes time so he <laughs> he misunderstood what i said and he designed this incredibly elaborate scene where the vampires are falling out of helicopters into a town causing a riot in the streets he said we'll do it in one shot <laughs> i'm like but that's not what i meant that's more complicated yeah. anyway you know what because we figured out what to do and even now when i tell this story mickle goes mm -hmm. But let me just tell you, I said, dude, you can cut on swish pans so we could still break it up. Uh, so it's a fantastic scene and it really feels like it's unfolding in, in one shot. But that's not what I had tried to, <laughs> to tell him to do. Anyway, uh, these are just the great stories, the war stories about working with different directors and, and how uh, that collaboration is, is really vital. So shifting a little bit, because I think about, I actually like personally want to know what your position on this is, is are all movies, genre movies, you speak of horror, like are collectively, or do all movies have a genre or are there movies that are genre movies and movies that are just something else? And then what makes a good genre movie? Well, I'll, I'll speak. I, I think that, uh, I mean, I don't really care about genre. In fact, I think you could say that my whole agenda has been to fight genre. One movie I always loved is called Something Wild by Jonathan Demme. And it starts out oh. as if it's a, uh, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, but you know, a dating movie. It's Jeff Daniels and Melanie Griffith. And, and, and you know, she's like, can you come to my high school reunion? Because uh, I don't wanna show up and show that I'm a loser and a single, woman and he goes well sure g shucks and it's kind of a g shucks kind of a movie and it's good music and it's jonathan demi and everything well then ray liotta shows up and he's the jealous boyfriend and it turns into a really scary movie because it started in a different way if they'd had the spooky music from the start you'd be like okay well this will be a fun thriller but i know what i'm getting into whereas this it blindsides you and that's just one example but what I'm saying is that uh, I think what is exciting is movies that surprise you. My movie Habit, it was designed such that you didn't know it was a vampire movie. Uh, I, I don't say the word vampire until three quarters through that film. And um, the idea was like, my, my feeling is that horror 
creeps into your life and you suddenly realize either, you know, there is a ghost in my house. I thought it was just the plumbing, you know, or you realize, oh, there is a, a monster out there, you know, all of that, as opposed to the traditional way to present a horror movie is with the jaws cold open. You, you immediately have the attack and then you're sort of nervous the rest of the movie. But the irony is uh, we always joke at our company that Ty West is the king of the slow burn movie. Well, that's because he's not interested in the horror until way later. Even in X, it's an hour and I think 20 minutes before anything truly uh, shocking happens. And yet- Yeah, it's not, I don't wanna, yeah, exactly. It's really late. It's. I mean, it's funny when they call that a horror movie, I'm like, well, I don't know what- I was about to say it. And then I was like, wait, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a spoiler. I don't know if people have seen it. I was like about to make part, but I, I, I like caught myself. <laughs> You're right. And, and in a way, you know, it is. Yeah. And the spoiler thing is, is an important notion. Uh, if you really wanted to market these movies, I mean, I tried to market habit without saying it was a, even a horror movie. I mean, we, we flirted with that, but in the end, you just throw up your hands and say, God, we just got to get someone into the theater. <laughs> but uh, anyway, your first question, I mean, I think you can tell a genre movie whose agenda is simply, you know, Friday the 13th, you're going to go see some kids get killed after they have sex, hopefully. And, you know, I don't think that's fine. And, and it, that, that's really the market. In a way, it's harder to work on the edges where you're interested in other things. And of course, I have the added nightmare of trying to make politically relevant or socially, I don't know, you know, in other words, movies about uh, climate change and uh, self-betrayal and addiction and really the, what are the true horrors of our lives, which is the loss of control and, and, and self-destruction and all the things that really I think about humanity and just, uh, and I think that's really where horror happens. And then the irony is I find monsters to be somewhat redemptive. I'm not completely sure monsters are the worst things there are. So I made a movie called Wendigo where you're aware that it's about our need for mythology and stories and, and how that's, uh, so, you know, whatever. The point is, is that I'm making a monster movie that's about the need for monster movies. So I'm engaged in the, the role of, uh, storytelling and mythology and fantasy in our in our lives and so on I'm, I'm blah 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 but I, you say how do you make a good horror movie it's you connect it to the people i mean that's why the exorcist is such a great movie honestly because the first half is so good because there again there's no devil talk it's just like something is wrong with my daughter and you're going to the doctor and then she pees on the floor in the middle of a party and you're like well, i don't understand what's the matter with you honey and then slowly she's her head spinning and she's acting very naughty. But uh, yeah, it's so I, I think it's it's obviously that's what's fun is to see how a filmmaker approaches this and sort of draws you in and tricks you and sort of creates a sense of dread. I find that the most interesting thing. Um, and extreme gore is is sort of neither here nor there. It can be done artfully or not. Um, so I think it's like porn. You can recognize porn and you can recognize great erotic cinema. And sometimes you want one, sometimes you want the other. <laughs> <laughs> so in that, I mean, horror is often associated with gore, with shocks, with all of those, those 
tropes, but as you're kind of alluding to the things that make it effective are realism. And we, you know, where do you see the, in the process of, of ideating around, around art, how do you find the connective tissue between the genre elements and the realism, you know, the, the environment, the schism in a marriage, the addiction, you know, where, where do you find the connective tissue? Um, well, I wanted to say one thing is that, you know, I saw the dead. Glenn loved horror, but I don't think he would actually talk about it the same way I do. In other words, he always talks about escapism and I think he likes, so there, there's a whole, um, there are people who enjoy sort of the, the fantasy world and the sort of the fake gore and the, the crazy splatter and the sort of the, the thrill ride of it all. I've just always been a more serious, I don't know, sort of a party pooper kind of a guy. I'm really interested in uh, in the darkness that eats at our society and at ourselves. What was your question though? It's a slightly mysterious question. <laughs> Uh, I think you're muted there, Sean. Oh, there. Here I'm sorry. Uh, I was muted. Thanks, guys. Um, so I've listened to you talk about realism. Yeah. And I I agree with your the way that I, I've I've heard you talk about it in the sense that a lot of people associate horror movies with the fantastic, with uh, escapism, kind of like you said. But I think that I personally feel that sometimes we use this art form to get to the heart of the way that one feels in certain life experiences. And I think that, you know, for example, you use the metaphor of vampirism to make us understand what it's like to lose a father and to replace that with alcohol and drugs and, 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 and companion, uh, uh, codependency and and all of these things you know it's codependency is what is what the movie's about but it's a vampire and and where do you find I, I guess I'm I'm thinking about if you're a person listening to this and you got your script and where do you like like you figured out at some point you know codependency and you know grief and vampirism are are your story what what the real movie is what's your process in thinking about these ideas that brings you the genre elements to evoke these feelings? I can actually answer that because I grew up loving movies like Frankenstein and Wolfman and Dracula, you know, for example. And what I really do is I say, why did I like those movies? They were speaking to me. What was I, why are they relevant? Why do they endure? Why can I watch them every October and maybe sneak them in a little bit off the season? Uh, and the answer is that they're really about something much more, much bigger and more universal than just, you know, and then you're like, so what is Frankenstein about? And you immediately understand uh, the deeper themes that make that just a timeless story, almost a modern myth. And that's, you know, the loneliness of the creature. He doesn't know why he was created. He can't find the friends, you know. Uh, issues of fatherhood you know who's this doctor that made him and do you abandon your child if you don't you know if you're afraid of it or you think it's ugly uh it's issues of being ugly and uh misunderstood 
on it goes. It's just the richest tapestry of themes. And then I say, this is what interests me. I go like, now I want to tell that story again, but in a new uh, vernacular so we can revise the vitality of the old, tired old myth with the flat head. And we're going to sort of see that monster in a new way. Peter and I worked on my film Depraved for years. <laughs> I finally was able to make it. But uh, so that's one thing. But now with the vampire, you're like, I just love the vampire story. And how is it relevant? Let me think. Let me think. Well, you know, it this and that and so on and so on. And, you know, I think addiction, codependency, the sexuality of vampires came to mind, all of that. And then, you know, I connected to personal things. Now, my beloved father is still alive and, you know, I had never lost a parent, but but I'm interested in the patriarchy because we're also dealing with the, the haunted past of our history and what our society has chosen. I mean, now in the woke world, we can talk about the sins of slavery and so on, but those have always been around. It's not like the last 10 years is when that became a truth. So I've always been interested in that. My film Wendigo is exactly about that. It's about the Native Americans were taken over by the settlers, the settlers upstate are now being replaced by New Yorkers who come up for their vacations. And there's this endless cycle of violence. And then somewhere a Wendigo comes in and sets everything right. Uh, so there again, I was like, what does the Wendigo really mean? And how does it play into a, a story? I always said, when I made Habit, I said, well, what would it really be like? And I was like, well, you'd meet this really hot chick. <laughs> she want to have sex with you all the time. I mean, I don't see what the problem is. But the other <laughs> thing is, um, the, the most important thing is that I don't want to tell those stories as just social dramas. I, part of me doesn't like humanity enough to just tell really truth-based stories about people. I like to have the supernatural or some other element and in, it's a weird, it's the same instinct that leads people to religion and faith, you know, is, is there must be something more. And in my case, I just want to pepper it with these great old conceits of werewolves and monsters and creatures that live in the lake. And, and what does that mean? It means that we find nature still mysterious and, and we still find the darkness scary and, and, all those things, all those are enduring truths. Fear is the motivating emotion, in my opinion. You might say love is, but that's just a hopeful conceit. <laughs> so we're gonna wrap soon. And I have kind of like, I mean, I have another page of questions. So I'm gonna like lightning round some of these and like say whatever you wanna say. Like, <laughs> but like, I don't know. I, I, I look at a few, I look at your, your career and there's like two kind of trilogies. You've got your vampire movie, you've got your Wendigo, you got two Wendigo movies and you got your Frankenstein. And then I also feel like you have your marriage trilogy, which started at the beginning and then goes to Wendigo. And then in a way, Jacob's wife kind of completes your, you know, no telling Wendigo and Jacob's wife are like your marriage trilogy that kind of, you know, seem to, be evocative of like of, of, a, of an arc of a life and it's a really beautiful thing um and and they also transpire in your info vampires when to go and and, and frankenstein and I, I i like that a lot <laughs> i like that too and you know this speaks to why i do 
get involved in other things is I couldn't make all these movies. I didn't make Jacob's Wife, but I was so happy to be invited in. And like you say, it's sort of a continuation of some of my themes, but I'm able to do it, uh, just show up for the three weeks instead of, you know, the two years it takes to make a movie. So, um, and that's why I like being invited into other projects that have a similar mindset um, maybe not exactly tonally as I would do it, but thematically things that uh, interest me, like you say, doing a vampire movie with that's really a portrait of a marriage. So, yeah, I mean, that's the joy of, of having a, a greater community. And also, I, I have to admit, it's a real privilege to be an actor because you can drop into these projects and uh, hopefully offer something, but certainly gain being on other people's set seeing how they like to do things. And um, it's just all, you know, a big collaboration. You're great in it. And I love the moment where you decide what you're going to do and you commit to her and the, yeah. the look in your eyes and look, your face completely changes. And it's like that, it, like, I was like, oh, that's the guy who I've watched for, for two decades. He's back. Like, like you were like sleeping in the movie and then you're like, he's back. And, and I love that. Um, I, uh, we didn't talk at all about, okay, one thing, okay, two things I want to cover before we, we wrap. How do we get Sudden Storm a Wendigo reader? <laughs> you know, on the online, it says it costs a thousand dollars. It was a, well, I did it with a publishing company. They called me, they said, do you want to do this? And I said, of course. And I made a Wendigo reader. Uh, we got a lot of great- Behind help. you also, the, the, the portraits. That's if, right. If you're watching on video. This was, uh, that's from the, so I, I commissioned artists to do it and so on. And I, I'm really touched that you asked because the truth is I'm gonna, uh, I'm in the process of redoing it. I'll probably just, it's not self-publishing. There's this uh, publishing on demand, so it'll just be there, and you can you can pay for the book, and they'll make it. The little oh, slip at Amazon, they make it. I mean, I did this with a book recently, and it's kind of magical because you don't put a lot of money out, um, and yet the thing does exist. And as usual, I can never find a real publisher. I can never find real supporters. <laughs> but uh, I, the the book is wonderful, and it's it's really a conversation about bigger issues like manifest destiny and the, and a lot of them are critiques of my movies. Like why is this white guy making Wendigo movies? And I'll take it, uh, you know, from, from native thinkers and scholars, but some of them like the films and like the theme. So it's a, I don't know. I, I like the, I just think it's such a fascinating monster, the Wendigo, the Wendigo. <laughs> I love it. I can't wait to read it. I haven't read it. I mean, you know, um, Peter and I also made um, uh, Until Dawn together. That was, I was this is my next, this is my next, yeah. I'm covering all of the other things now. Yeah, okay, yeah. go, yeah. <laughs> well, I get a call uh, from this wonderful woman who's been very supportive and uh, she says, you gotta take this meeting with these two British guys. And I go, sure, I don't know what. Uh, so we go in and they start asking me all these questions. Uh, and I notice a pattern in what they're talking about has to do with these obscure references to the Wendigo mythology. They say our story takes place on Blackwood Mountain. Well, the, move, the old short story was written by Algernon Blackwood. Um, it turns out they're video game guys. And they say, would you write a spec script 
uh, because maybe you're the man to help us. We're trying to make a movie that feels like a horror movie, a teen horror movie, um, but it'll be a, a video game. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know anything about video games, but I know about the Wendigo. So I called <laughs> my pal, uh, Graham Resnick, who uh, we've referenced a couple of times. Um, he made I Can See You, but he also designed all of Ty's uh, sound for the first, well, for all his movies, I think, um, including X. Uh, so I called Graham and I said, Graham, you're, you're a video guy. Uh, do you want to try to do this? And then I think I forgot about it. And I remember he called me, you know, a week later and he said, Larry, what's going on? Are we writing the thing? And I'm like, oh, sure, let's do it. So we had a lot of fun writing the uh, spec script and we got the job. And we worked on it for two more years and we brought Peter in to help them produce the, uh, the motion capture sessions. And, uh, and they were, it was a great collaboration. All of us had a blast, if I recall. And we got a BAFTA and we all wore bow ties. I read a review of Off Season, Mickey Keaton's movie, and it said that it was it was like a so-so review, and it said that this is the movie that someone it, it was as if he was trying to make the movie version of a Silent Hill video game. Yeah, yeah. And they said it as a diss in the review, and I was like, that sounds awesome. I, I watched the movie, and I love. I've seen the movie twice, and that idea, and then thinking about you doing Until Dawn. I was like, oh, like that, there's a connective tissue there, like of Mickey and ma making with Jocelyn, you know? So I was wondering if you thought about that at all as, as that movie is like a video game. Uh, I think it's one of Mickey's best. I love it. Wise. And uh, I think the best thing about it is the voiceover in the beginning. I don't know if you noticed, but that was, you know, that was me. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's just got a great atmosphere. And there's actually the New York Times review was very sweet because the, the writer said, you know, I don't know what was going on in that movie, but I just found it so soothing to be in that world, wandering as she, you know, as Jocelyn is just wandering in the town through the mist. And I knew what she meant, the reviewer, because it just has this kind of weird, soupy vibe. But uh, I think it's got great atmosphere. And it's fun to see always fun to see Joe uh, Swanberg in a movie as well. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was one of my favorites. Um, okay, Tales from the On the Pale. When are we doing it? When's it happening? Uh, it's happening. This fall, we will be releasing another 10 episodes. Amazing. We're, uh, we're working on it now. In fact, I better write that down, right? Script to tell. <laughs> Great. We have some great uh, returning guests and some new people. And uh, of course, Glenn is um, just such an essential, truly the, the, the most committed member of the team. But uh, I love Tales. And it's, it's so fun to just the legacy of great stories we've told and all the experimentation with sound. So very excited to go. All back. online. There's a, there's a million of them. Tales.com. Uh, if you're listening or you know you're watching you know you get what i'm what i'm getting at here is is the glass eye universe is vast and and it's multimedia there's a lot of different people involved there's a lot of different ways that you can you know you can read you can listen you can watch you can play there's a lot of different things you guys have done and it's, and it's wonderful um okay i have what's the most profitable what, what's the biggest profit you guys ever made on glass eye picks don't, don't say anything that you can't say, but I'm, I'm just kind of interested, like. Uh, well, Ty doubled our money 
with the race. That's a bad, that was the high point of the uh, whole operation. But uh, we still get checks. Uh, thanks, Pete. I just got my check uh, <laughs> for Stay Clan and House of the Devil. You know, that's the beauty of residuals. They do, they keep coming in if the fans are interested. But we've made, uh, I don't know, just very fond of things like uh, Stake Land 2. You know, it's uh, it's yeah. just cool to have made that movie and, and the care with which everybody approached it. Pete was up in Canada. We got the two young directors and uh, uh, the original writers and the cast. It was just, you know, so there's all these nice offshoots that didn't get quite as much love and attention, but they they keep the mission and as you say all the branching aspects going all right so we got to wrap but i want just this is like really personal question like i beneath is fucking wild i hope i can curse them so it's just bonkers and i love it like i was texting with i watched it the other night and i was texting with peter while watching it just like <laughs> raving like <laughs> and um i don't know if you're aware but i made a movie basically about my watching creep show to the raft oh and, wow and we, cool. we watch it in the movie i'm showing it on sunday um oh. so i mean i like you're referencing that right like you're aware of that movie right certainly okay. <laughs> okay i'm like just <laughs> I'm like, we're, okay. yeah. it's the fucking magnum. Oh my God, it's incredible. Like, yeah. There are two things about Beneath. One is it's the one movie that Peter and I really did. We made that together. Uh, you know, we did all this other stuff together, but that was fun. We finally, Peter finally produced one of my movies. And so I think we're fond of that memory. And then the other thing is that on the flip side, uh, it was the beginning of the Twitter sphere, it seems to me, because I was walking out of the credits. We showed it at um, the Overlook Film Festival. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like three feet out the door and and the shitty reviews were coming in. And the, the, <laughs> it was just so mean. And I was like, what? That was a fun movie. We just watched it. It was so, well, it was so fun. <laughs> So I have a very damaged experience with that because they just uh, eviscerated it. And it was when when the reviews would come out before the credits even finished rolling, you know, in other words, the beginning of Twitter. Uh, so yeah, it's all very sad, but I think it's a great satire about humanity and the complete inability to work together to uh, to conquer a very real threat like climate change or a giant rubber fish instead they just turn on each other i thought it was a fun commentary and anyway we had a lot of fun making it. and i think i'm told that you have the fish right yeah, it's right in the garage <laughs> amazing i'll tell you it still smells like that lake and then my wife so. said she said whatever you do whatever you do don't bring those boats back well there are also three of them <laughs> Next to the fish in the garage. Those are those are crucial. Jack will take them. They'll be very No, now a tree fell on them recently, so they're just nothing but oh, driftwood. Right. <laughs> and then, how do we watch Foxhole? Foxhole comes out May thirteenth through Samuel Goldwyn, and I'm very proud of that movie. It. it is not a genre film. Um, it is a fantastic, thoughtful, uh, artful film. 
and uh, should be seen. I hope people will go to it. I think I think Stray Bullets is fantastic, and I'm really excited to watch Foxhole, and I'm excited for this retrospective. I will I will be there. Um, well, come to Foxhole. We are showing it there too. Uh, great. Second, it's the New York premiere. I can't wait, um, guys. Anything else that we should plug while we're talking? Anything else we should announce? Eight. Well, um, you know, there's a bunch of other, I think, films that we didn't get to, you know, kind of talk about that's playing in the, in the retrospective as well. Um, because uh, I'll say that, like, at, at, at some point, um, when I had come back from making The Sacrament, uh, a young, um, ambitious uh, producer uh, reached out to want to learn how we made movies because she was a fan. But uh, this is none other than uh, Jen Wexler who came on and, Fancy. you know, and, uh, you know, and I said, like, look, you know, producing is not uh, as glamorous as it may, you know, may, may sound. And, uh, but showed her how, you know, we approached it glass eye. And, um, and uh, so through that, she went on to produce Anna Asensio's uh, Most Beautiful Island, uh, which was, uh, you know, a, a movie that, uh, you know, was, was just born out of, you know, the pure sort of ambition of making a movie. Um, telling uh, Anna's own personal story that she wanted to share. Um, and then the triumph of the movie going to South by and then winning uh, best narrative film. Um, um, and then also selling to, to Samuel Goldwyn um, there. Um, and then Jen went on to make uh, her own directorial debut in the Ranger, which is playing. Um, but before that she produced like me um, that Larry has an incredible role in. Um, and yeah, so these are other movies that, you know, I'm happy to support that's, that's playing at the, at MoMA and, you know, I'm excited to, to go see it again. Yeah. Thanks Pete. That's so true. And I want to say that glass, I would, I always say I'm going to close the doors cause it's just, uh, it's, it's tough running the show, but then someone like Jen came along under Peter's tutelage and she just kept it going for an extra five years. We made two Mickey Keating movies. We made uh, psychopaths and also darling. Um, she came in when we were just finishing Beneath and, um, and then actually she took over the baton and produced, uh, my Frankenstein movie when Pete said, I'm going to LA, man, fuck this. <laughs> so, uh, he did all the, the setup work and then, uh, Jen took it over the finish line with Chad Harbold, who you also mentioned. Um, and, uh, so Jen's tenure there was essential. And when she left, which is what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to leave the the nest eventually. When she left, I uh, I felt a little high and dry. So we'll see what the next chapter is. But first, we got to get through this retrospective. <laughs> it's a great moment, Ben, and 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 I'm I'm honored to be able to talk all this through with you guys. You 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 both have been a huge part of my you know film enjoyment and education, especially in the genre, but really just overall. I think more than anything, the biggest takeaway is the camaraderie and the community and the infrastructure that you two have built and been a part of. And I hope that everyone looks at this. I hope, I hope that people look at this retrospective and think about the way that people can make art together. Because I love the way that, that you two do it. And it's a pleasure to know you both. And, and thank you to Maria and Aaron for, uh, for, having, for putting this together and, and allowing me to be a part of it. Thank you, guys. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate your uh, your <laughs> your being a fan uh, and and for taking the message the right way. <laughs>
Yeah, truly. 